fellow kids, and you're listening to Hello Fellow Kids, a young adult podcast that reads books. Okay, I just tried a new thing. Yeah, no, keep and going. It backfired badly. And I oh, I'm down with out. it. <laughs> We're uh, Josh and Mara. As you, uh, I'm Josh. No, I'm not. Um, I, I am indeed Mara. I can't fool you, listener, who's so clever sitting at home going, mm, she's lying. Anyway, this is an extra episode we usually do once a month because essentially Josh and I write a whole book report on these books. And it's kind of exhausting. So more than once a month, it's a little much. But anyway, this is an extra one because this is an arc we received. Uh, it's prepped by Bethany Mangle. Do you remember the publisher, Joshua? Margaret K. McElderry books. All right. Yeah. So um, we were given this for free to review and we are doing so now. In exchange for an honest review. And yeah. I'm going to be honest, I didn't enjoy this book. No, I didn't either. I, I'm tired of this happening. <laughs> we have had we have had one actually stellar free book, I think, and that was Life Formed. And then by extension, there are other stuff, but I'm going to lump that all in as one because they're they're real good. Um, but they all all the other ones have been varying degrees of not my thing. Yeah, um, I'd prefer, I would have preferred, um, rereading Every Stolen Breath rather than do this. Um, oh, yeah, Every Stolen Breath actually wasn't bad. It was pretty decent. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it. It was solid. Uh, I, I apologize to the author of, uh, Every Stolen Breath for forgetting you. That was not a bad read. No, I was um, sitting there, that was like the first thing I thought of. And then you said, like, you know, life formed because we interviewed the two creators twice. <laughs> and I'm just like, oh, right. Yeah. I guess, that, yeah, but that was, I, yeah, I shouldn't have, cause there, that wasn't an advanced copy. They just gifted me one at a convention. Right. Um, I, but. I might be able to, um, soften the edges here, cause I disliked it, but it definitely isn't a hate, and I don't feel strongly enough about it to be like a huge B-I-T-C-H about it. That's actually why I, d like, I don't like it so much, is like, I don't <laughs> like it because I don't care about it. Right. It's a oh my very God. weird feeling. I wrote that a few times in my notes. Like, okay, the mom's pulling Katie's hair. I feel like I should care, but I don't. And I'm just like, hmm. Because I, I see why you messaged me and you're just like, oh, there's child abuse in this. And I'm just like, oh, considering I hate this child pretty strongly. <laughs> this is an unpleasant book about unpleasant, unpleasant people, people. And it's not done in a way where you feel like there's any relief from it as the reader. It's just like, hey, just be miserable for 300 pages. Even at the lighthearted parts, I still thought everyone sucked. Yeah, and then, well, and even the lighthearted parts, like, uh, half of them I didn't, like, believe as a reader. Like, I'm like, this doesn't seem like a thing. I don't believe that the characters are doing this or saying this. I honestly felt that one of the most believable parts was the concept of the doomsday prepping, and then, like, half of the character interactions, I'm like, this doesn't feel like a real interaction. I feel this like... feels like action figures just being posed so that she can have the scene without actually thinking about, like, what it means for the characters to be in that scene. Honestly, this felt like this should have been Roy's book. I yeah. felt Roy was the more interesting character. I don't like saying that, because I like female protagonists. I, I 110%. That's all I ever read. So if I'm telling you that the man was more interesting, that's telling you something. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't like being in Becca's head. I th felt she was a smarter and meaner Bella Swan from 
Twilight. I can't believe I had to say from Twilight. Like everyone else is going to be like, there's so many Bella Swans. Who could she mean? (laughs) (laughs) That's like the number one protagonist name. You know, Bella Swan from The Great Gatsby. I know. She just like threw all her parties, like (laughs) trying to compete with Gatsby. And he's like, I'm just the green light. He's like, I'm trying to do this thing for a specific reason. She's all like, ah, don't do anything. And she's just like, uh, uh, nihilism, because everything in the symbolism in that book is about as subtle as a brick upside your head. Sorry, I know you love that book. I, I'm not trying to be mean, but I hate I it. I love that book, but I, I I don't think that everybody has to love that book, so go ahead. <laughs> There's some books where if people don't like them, I go like, there might be something wrong with you. <laughs> I can't think of one offhandedly because I'm kind of outside of that um, mindset that younger people have. Like people can enjoy a book I don't like and I don't look at it like you're wrong and all the ways. offense. No. Uh-uh. Or like factually incorrect. Right. Yeah. So the thing with prepped, though, um, you and I don't like it. But I went and looked, and it mostly has four-star reviews on Goodreads. So I feel like... This is more like a personal preference kind of deal. Uh, this is a your mileage may vary kind of book. It just didn't work for Josh and me. And honestly, in the construction of the story itself, I don't have any complaints. I don't have any problems with pacing. I felt like it went pretty swiftly. I felt like every chapter kind of added something. There was no useless chapters like, here's a chapter they made soup, and then it moves on. Like, there's always, like, some kind of reveal happening. You just don't care, you know? Yeah. You just don't care. It's like it was like a not quite as detailed or polished. Um, so you want to be a wizard, which was also technically proficient in its writing, but you just didn't care. You didn't connect with the people, and that's a hard thing to try and teach someone in writing. Is like you have to make us care about your care. I don't know. You you're gonna have to do better than this because no no one likes Becca. No one's rooting for Becca. <laughs> Least of all me. Oh, boy. Anyway, maybe we should just get into this. If this has uh, been long-winded enough of a... um, I almost said cold open. This isn't a TV show. <laughs> this has been long-winded enough of an intro. All and right. despite all my talking, Josh is the synopsis person this I this am. time. Okay, let's uh, let's get in here. Did we even describe what this book was about? No. Okay, so it's about... <laughs> It's about a small community of doomsday preppers living in Ohio, and the two most prominent characters are Becca and Roy, and they are both high school seniors who, despite living in the doomsday community, attend a public high school, uh, and Becca wants nothing more than to get to college, leave the whole prepper community behind but it's difficult because her parents are in it and she has a younger sister. And so she's kind of struggling between finding her own future and wanting to kind of protect what she has as far as a family goes. And we'll get into some of the twists and turns that that takes. And neither of us liked it. Neither of us liked it. Yeah. Chapter one. Becca is about to jump into a pond of freezing water. You see, her family is part of a doomsday prepper community, and her dad is leading a training exercise for the teenagers. Survive for ten minutes in hypothermic conditions. Among the other kids are younger teenagers Heather and Candace, and Roy, Becca's boyfriend, as selected by her parents. Among the audience is Becca's mom, 
and Becca's 10-year-old sister, Katie, who is the apple of her father's eye. The kids jump in the water, and Becca struggles to make it 10 minutes before Roy tries to get all grabby with helping her and constantly says what a great training exercise this is. He's very gung-ho about the whole thing. Uh, Becca tries to appeal to her father, who is upset that she's embarrassing him by complaining. Eventually, time is up and the kids get out. Becca and her family return home, where Becca is grounded. Katie gives Becca a backpack of her stuff, and she goes into the woods and down into an underground shelter. Literally, she is grounded. Chapter 2. Becca gets to inventory all the supplies in the bunker. And while she does, she reiterates an important point. She doesn't buy into this stuff the way her family does. She thinks the whole idea of prepping is ridiculous and creepy and gets in the way of living a real life. She feels better when she gets to work on her physics homework, because at least that has a practical application. Once that's done, she has nothing left to do but sleep and wait out her sentence. Chapter 3. The next morning, Becca returns home and preps for school. Ha <laughs> Uh, her parents are moderates in the community, meaning although Becca and Katie are trained in their doomsday survival lifestyle, they also attend public school. Katie convinces Bella... Bella. <laughs> 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 Katie convinces Becca to forge their mom's signature so she can go on a field trip to the aquarium. Becca heads to school and has to play up her relationship with Roy for the sake of his mom as she drives by. Roy is a true believer of the Doomsday Cult and also very devoted to the arranged marriage with Becca and hasn't figured out that Becca is really not interested in any of it. Becca's plan instead is to get a full ride to a university. She's currently waiting to hear back from Carnegie Mellon and never look back. And if it weren't for Aiden, the assumed valedictorian, she'd be less worried about her prospects. Uh, she attends physics class taught by her favorite teacher, Miss Garcia. Miss Garcia's class fish has died, so naturally she puts it in front of a sleeping student, Brian, for him to notice when he finally wakes up. Miss Garcia is hopeful that Becca will participate in the science fair this year. Becca agrees as long as Miss Garcia, whose daughter is in Katie's class, keeps an eye on her during the field trip. So, a lot of the stuff that I touched on during the introduction, but we also get some of the supporting cast as well. I always do the synopsis, like, after each chapter, and so I don't always know what's going to be relevant, and so sometimes I will add in extra stuff. Like, most of the names of everyone besides Becca, Roy, Miss Garcia, and her parents, you don't really need to know. There are a couple other characters that are relevant for a couple of chapters, but, like, Aiden the Valedictorian is just, like, whatever. He's just the, the rich kid who gets everything. And then, like, the other teenagers in the community don't really have any anything. They don't have much purpose there, besides to make the community sound bigger. Yeah, do you have anything for the first few chapters here? Well, everyone sucks. Yeah. Um, I was originally, like, on board with Becca, because she's just like, I this is such bullcrap, you know? And I was just like, yeah, that's how I'd feel. <laughs> this sounds about right. Yeah. But then the more time you spend in her head, you're just like, boy, she really doesn't think well of anyone, does she? And the people she likes kind of suck, and I don't really understand what's happening. Particularly, like, the first chapter where she's just like, ten, ten minutes is too long for us to be in this frigid water. And I couldn't help thinking, like, you know, I feel like the first step in cold water survival is don't submerge yourself in cold water if you can help it. Um <laughs> You, you're gonna, it's not a good idea, cause that, like, you know, when you jump into something cold and you do that, <gasps> it's like that, that's, yeah. invo that's involuntary. And a lot of people drown just in that instance, cause you can't control, so it's very risky for them to have even done this, especially with these younger kids who, um, are wearing the life jackets, but they're too small for the life jacket. And 
that's a problem all uh, in and of itself. It's kind of the same reasoning why water wings aren't going to save a child from drowning because uh, they'll keep their arms above the water, but their head's going to go down. Yeah, so, unless they're breathing out of the palms of their hands. Yeah, then it's like, oh, okay. And then by the time we get to school, and we're and we're told that Ms. Garcia is the best, but um, I think she's unnecessarily cruel. She hands back the uh, tests, and she gives Becca an F, and then puts, like, April Fool's at the bottom, and, like, I was just like, She's aware of Becca's home life, right? And like how important grades are to her. So to pull that kind of stunt and like scare her for, even for an instant is really mean. So Yeah, and then the fish thing. The is fish like thing, not I don't funny. get it. No, I I got pretty upset about that. Um what did I write in my notes? The kid falls asleep in class and she puts a dead fish on the desk and then she refuses to let anyone wake him so he'll miss his other classes, which I think is taking it too far. And um, I wrote, uh, you don't know this kid's personal life. He could have a valid reason for falling asleep. Like he, I don't know, he could be working a couple jobs to try to get through college or, you know, to save up for college or just have like parents who argue all the time and then he can't get to sleep because of the stress and all that. And I had a short anecdote to tell about that kind of thing. I, I had a math teacher in sixth grade. I did not like her. She was kind of this abrupt kind of mean person. And I remember she was, uh, it was sixth grade. It was like our first time, all of us in middle school. And she was not patient or kind with us for coming in late from PE from the class before. Cause I mean, we had to get used to dressing quick cause we hadn't changed for PE before and then done PE. Cause everyone just did, you know, that in their clothes in elementary school, which is so gross when you think about it. But, um, we come back and uh, she'd be all like, you're all late. And I was like, we just came from PE. Why can't you be nice? But um, so never liked this teacher. But then one day this kid fell asleep in class and uh, he was this badly bullied kid. I remember our bus driver telling us that he had a bad um, home life and he probably shouldn't have been sharing that with us. But he uh, pointed out to us that the boy and his brother would get off the bus at the same time and then walk a different ways home to their house because they couldn't be trusted to walk together and just like it's like a five minute walk to their house oh my god they can't do that but anyway this boy falls asleep at his desk and this mean teacher goes over to him and like gently shakes his shoulder and like says something to him and then he sits up a little bit and then she writes him a, a pass to go to the nurse to finish his finish sleeping and it was just handled like quickly and like nicely in the middle of this class and it's always stuck with me and it made me think differently about that teacher i was like okay that was that was really cool of her that was really neat to do so i was thinking of that when this teacher does this and i was just like can you be kind please <laughs> i remember reading some of the goodreads uh reviews and some people were mentioning that there's there's like a a morbid sense of humor in this book and i don't like i there is i think that it's mean there's just mean things it's yeah. not like like a morbid sense of humor like i can i like dark jokes that are actually constructed jokes you know if something is awful but there is a there's a setup and a punchline that's a dark joke but just having bad things happen and mean things happen isn't a joke it's just uncomfortable and unpleasant and it's not even like offensive it's just like why am i reading that yeah um and the whole book was like this, so it was just kind of 
a struggle, not as badly as with tunnels because tunnels was twice as long as this. I really, I really appreciate the brevity of this one where it's just like, good, let's just get this done and a little over 300 pages and just finish it. But, um, yeah, I don't, I don't see the morbid sense of humor. I see a mean spirited sense of humor and I've never liked that kind of thing. I think that there's definitely a way to handle making jokes about unpleasant things or stuff like that. And she doesn't really do that. No, no. So that, that might account for all the four and five star reviews, because I think that's just a personality type. And yeah. me and you just don't gel with that kind of person. Or, um, you know, there can be a little bit of mean humor, but mean with some spice, with some truth to it, rather right. than just being mean for the sake of being mean. Yeah. Anyway, maybe we should continue on. Uh, chapter four. Back home, Becca is quizzed on the particulars of firefighting, a skill the community trains in so as to not be reliant on the government if things go wrong. Her dad is picking up on her lack of enthusiasm, which she tries to mask. After some questions at the dinner table, Becca and her dad head to a different part of the community where a shipping container has been refitted as a practice burning home for rescue operations. Roy and some of the other teenagers are there, too. The kids are tested on their speed at putting on their firefighting gear, and Roy is the only one to get it first try. The others have to keep redoing it, which only disappoints Becca's dad more. Then it's time for the fake rescue, which is one of the only times Becca appreciates having Roy around. They've been working together so long that these exercises go very efficiently. After their first run, Roy Brown noses Becca's dad, asking for another turn. Real quick, I do want to talk about early stage of the book, Becca Roy, because, like, I'm picking up on she's not interested in him at all, and the only time that she has any sort of affection that she shows towards him, it's either, or she's faking it to keep up appearances, or he is useful. I don't pick up on any sort of, like, okay, plot twist, the two teenagers fall in love in a teen book. That's going to happen in this, but I don't see it. Like, at the start, it's just like, oh, wow, she has no interest, and he does, and so he's kind of like, it, like, I, I get vibes of, like, him trying to, like, get some action in a couple of spots. Like, I'm pretty sure during the um initial thing in the, the water where he's, like, helping her out and stuff, it's very much a kind of, like, more contact-heavy maybe than necessary, and so I was immediately just kind of like, Okay, so they're on super different pages here, and that's kind of a problem. So then when there's a flip, I just don't buy it. No, I didn't either. It felt so unearned. It was more like, oh, this is a teen book. There needs to be a romance. Yeah. There there need to be little things peppered in where, like, maybe she, like, catches, like, some glimpse of, like, something, like... Oh, he seems really into this, but there's this element of humanity to him that none of the other preppers kind of seem to have. So maybe she'd be intrigued by that, but then still be so grossed out by like the company man mentality he has. Or she tells us way later that he's attractive when she like, maybe she should have said it like, oh, look how, you know, he's really good looking. Too bad that's such a waste considering he's like super into this prep crap, you know? Yeah. But nothing like that. So if that had been peppered in from the beginning, so that she at least had like, so, okay, the whole structure of this, I know I said that was structured well, but I mean, I feel like the story would have been more interesting had we begun with Becca actually being into this, you know, the, the prepper stuff. And then maybe the exit with her dad is the thing that makes her go like, well, wait, you can't prep for everything. But instead of her reaction being like, 
like everyone else, like bury your head in the sand and we got to prep even harder. Her reaction is like, well, what's the point? If anything's going to find you, you may as well live your life. You know, that would have been a more interesting story trajectory. That is super correct. (laughs) Not to say that there's like a right or wrong opinion, but that is the right opinion because (laughs) then that would also make Sydney's character a lot more valuable because then she would be the access point to transitioning to a normal life. Yes. There is a much better story in here if you started off with Becca being way into it and then having a shocking revelation that forces her out of it. And then you you get you get the intrigue of starting it with being like I as a reader totally don't agree with her, but she's so convinced of it that I am engaged in the distinction between her thoughts and my thoughts, and I want to keep going because of that, because that's so unique. And instead, you just get a bland voice that you doesn't sound much different than anybody else, regardless of the fact that she's been living in this psychotic community her whole life. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's too bad she didn't have us read this at the early, because I feel like, I feel like it wouldn't be that much of a tweak. She could have kept everything else pretty much the same. But with that tweak, like just a little bit change to her personality, I would have cared about her more. It just, I was like, okay, I know enough about what you don't like. <laughs> you yeah. gripe about everything. God, you're tiresome. I, I wrote like at the end of my notes for chapter four, uh, we're four chapters in and I already find all these people exhausting. I think if she tweaked it like that, then it might be interesting to do one of those, like, um, alternating perspectives, because then you can have Roy, who starts off not believing it, but you don't know that at the start, because we get the first beginning of it from Becca's point of view, and then you get him, and he doesn't believe it, and then he's kind it's kind of role reversal, where he's like, it's like, wow, I'm really into Becca, it's such a shame that she's so into this, so then when there's a revelation that she no longer believes it, then he can reveal, yeah. hey, I don't believe in it either, and then bam, they go all, like, Bonnie and Clyde, and then they they prep their escape. Yes. But instead, it's dumb. It's this, yeah. This kind of paint-by-numbers YA book that doesn't, that nothing really connects. Chapter five. Yeah. (laughs) Chapter five. Because I feel like we're talking about things that the listener hasn't heard yet, but we need to, I'm sorry, we gotta gotta get into that then. Okay. Uh, Chapter five. Becca stays up late researching science fair projects and making Katie brush her teeth for once in her GD life. (laughs) She ends up oversleeping, which means she didn't wake her dad up on time for his job. She rushes to get ready and races towards school. Unfortunately, morning is apparently a great time for drunk drivers, and Becca watches helplessly as her dad's car collides with a veering stranger's. He is severely injured and unresponsive, and Becca pleads for him to make it out okay. She then confronts Jackie, the woman who hit him, who already has prior DUI convictions, and threatens her. Then Becca and Roy get a ride to the hospital where Becca's dad will be treated. Chapter 6. At the hospital, Becca finds her mom, who is a nurse. She confirms that Becca's dad has gone into surgery, but it's too early to know much. She seems oddly distant about the whole thing, and reminds Becca that preppers only cry once they're safe, and they're never safe. That's emotionally healthy. Becca goes back to the lobby and sits with Roy. She is frustrated at Roy's lack of meaningful words, frustrated that she doesn't have a loving relationship with her parents like other people have, frustrated that of all the things for her prepper dad to possibly die from, it's a friggin' drunk driver. Eventually, they head back home and tell Katie the news. 
Katie is reading a comic book, one of the childish things that will soon be taken away from her as she grows into an adult prepper, but Roy promises not to tell anyone about it. They break the news to Katie, who rushes outside in a panic. Chapter 7. The next day, Becca finds a note from her mom that her dad has been placed in a medically induced coma. She manages to get Katie up and out of the house for her field trip, but she and Roy miss their bus and have to take Roy's dirt bike to school. There, Becca is summoned to the guidance counselor, where she brushes off any offered help and instead goes to the cafeteria for lunch. There, she meets Sydney, a non-prepper girl who has a broken eye socket, uh, which Becca accidentally caused at the site of the accident when Sydney tried to hold Becca back from getting too close, and Becca elbowed her in the face. Okay, now we have introduced an accident, and we have introduced Sydney. Cool. So, her dad's the king of the preppers, and now he's he is ironically in a public hospital receiving care for a drunk driving accident none of which the prepper code book uh prepares you for okay i had a problem with that okay the whole prepper community in this book i'm not gonna try and extrapolate to what it's like in the real world i don't know i don't care so i'm just gonna confine it to what's in this book they want to be prepared for every possible eventuality did they ever actually look at a list of what people commonly are injured in because i think number one is car accidents if you're looking at besides like heart disease so why are they all driving these crappy cars they should be driving like military grade cars which would have absorbed that impact and he probably would have been fine maybe yeah, gotten some bruises but he'd be okay i think they're Jackie, more concerned about they're more concerned about like a, an active shooter at a mall or a flood in the middle of Ohio than or an they earthquake are, in Ohio <laughs> than they are about yeah about car accidents which is the most frequent freaking thing ever like everybody's at least had some kind of fe- everyone like, who drives has at least had some kind of fender bender it's like i understand that their prepper mentality is we need to be prepared for once the end of the world occurs and we can survive that but it's like Maybe you should be prepping for surviving until the end of the world, huh? Huh? What about that part? All of that part that is going to last probably much longer than the end of the world part, which you probably won't be there to see. <laughs> You're not prepped for any of that. No. I had little things that bothered me, like uh, Becca showing up to the hospital and her mom not reassuring her anyway, or like, oh, I'm going to clock out and then spend the day with you and your sister because your sister still has no idea what happened. None of that. But she does give her food to go eat, but Becca doesn't use the money to pay for food. She uses her uh, mom's account at the, uh, the cafeteria. And then later she's at school and can't pay for lunch. I'm like, what happened to that money you didn't use? Do they say what happened? Did she pay for a cab to get to school or was uh, I thought that was kind of weird. I was just like, what happened to that money you just had? You could like pay for your lunch and put more towards like your lunch debt, which is a stupid thing that I think it's gross that schools have. Uh, am I missing something? You're not missing anything that I am not also missing. OK, because because I was just like, you have ten dollars. Pay for your lunch. <laughs> like, And then the lunch lady was a jerk. But I think that's true to form for lunch ladies. Prove me wrong. Prove me wrong. I have not met a nice lunch lady. Uh, also, the bus driver on Katie's bus was a complete asshole. And Katie's awful. Even before her, you know, uh, heel face turn, which I'm putting in, like, quotes, because I think she was a selfish, crappy kid from the beginning. Because she's uh, hounding Becca to sign this permission slip to go on this field trip. And uh, Becca knows it's a bad idea, says it's a bad idea, but does it anyway. And then, well, has fallout later that we'll discuss later. But like you tell her to do something like, OK, we need you to go on the bus today. You know, you're going to 
enjoy your field trip, just chill out. And she's like kicking and screaming and like, there's no way anyone at school likes her. You know, you don't like kids who act like that. Like I remember kids acting like that and being all like, we're nine. Why are you still having weird meltdown tantrums? You're a psycho. You know, I wouldn't call a child a psycho now. That's that was like elementary me looking at someone my age having a meltdown. But um, no, when I see an older kid having a meltdown, I'm just kind of like, ooh, that nothing good's happening in that kid's life. That is alarming. So I'm surprised they don't get more CPS visits, but they've had one CPS visit in their lives. And I feel like there should be more just based on Katie's behavior. Cause yeah. it's not normal. Plus she's just sounds gross. I just picture like someone with unbrushed hair with just snot crusted all around their nose. It's like every time I pictured Katie and then like anytime Becca's like, Oh, she's my heart. I love my little sister. I'm like, why? she's so she's so (laughs) crusty (laughs) i also want to just say really quickly that this is such a stark contrast between the book we read last time i okay the start of my synopsis here says if i had to pick the exact worst book to read after always and forever lord gene it would be this one yeah I, was, I could not think of a worse book to follow that up with because it touches on a lot of the same moments in a teenager's life, but it's also bad. Yeah, I was longing for Laura Jean so much in this. And OK, I'm going to say it. Last episode, I was really harsh towards little Kitty Covey. I think I said a few times I just wanted to shake her. I am officially standing now, sitting here in my pajamas, issuing a formal apology to Kitty Song Covey. This moment, I do not think she is the worst uh, little sister character ever. Katie wins. Like, I was in the whole time like, Kitty would never, Kitty would never through this whole book. Which isn't <laughs> fair, because, I mean, beyond just being, like, about teen protagonist who has a little sister, those two books have nothing in common. But I couldn't help but compare it because we just literally just read it. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. Kitty Covey would never. She's a way better sister than Katie is. Should 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 our first official merch t-shirt just say Kitty would never? <laughs> or I am standing here sitting in my pajamas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like Kitty would never. With like a picture of a kitty cat with like sunglasses yeah. on. Yeah. And it's like it's it's the same thing with like when we were reading that and I mentioned like I you know, I don't think that to All the Boys I Loved Before is a direct parallel to the Penderwicks. I don't think that this is a direct parallel to Always and Forever, Laura Jean, but there are there are elements of it that I'm like, wow, that book did that thing, but way better. And reading these back to back, it's like, oof, one of those, like, I, I get that there's like a prepper thing and that totally would change like some stuff, but it's also like, I'm, these are two books about senior year and like navigating the challenges of that. And one of them has humans in it. <laughs> I, I I straight up, I didn't feel like most of these characters were real people. They were just these little, like, action figures who just were whatever the author needed them to be. Roy was the most three-dimensional character. Mm-hmm. Well, like I said, that should have been Roy's story. Plus, it makes sense for him. Um, I know he was playing up being, like, you know, like, 100% on board. But his family came to this late. Like, he lived a normal life, and then, like, his parents just kind of started getting, like, obsessed with this particular lifestyle until they just moved. So it makes sense for him to kind of be like, well, wait, we used to have a nice house. (laughs) Like, why are we here? And it would make more sense for Becca to be on board 
with everything because what has she known different? Yeah, I don't I don't understand what like she goes to public school, but that's not an explanation. Like maybe once in a while she'd feel a twinge of like, oh, they have pretty clothes that are new and I have hand me downs. Right. But but do they know what to do if a alien satellite fell out of the sky onto the school? No, (laughs) I'd know what to do. It's like, okay, sure, Becca. Yeah, I don't I I don't I don't I don't. Anyway, now her dad's in the hospital. Yeah. And then there's a character named Sydney who is, I mean, we can just use the same mental actress that we used for Chris, right? But just give her less to work with. Yes. She, yeah. but she just has like a big like bandage over her eye for the whole book. It's Chris with, it's, it's Chris as a it's pirate. pirate Chris. It's pirate Chris. <laughs> yeah. Who's, who suddenly decides she likes Becca for no real reason. Yeah. So that was unearned as well. I feel yeah. like maybe if there'd been like a sub story of like maybe, because everyone's lived in this crummy town like their whole lives. Like maybe they'd been friendly at school when they were in elementary if they had that foundation. Yeah, or or maybe they could have like they could have like bonded at the hospital or something because after she gets elbowed in the eye socket, she probably had to go to the hospital as well. So maybe they there could have been a scene where like Becca's in the room, like the waiting room, just like all upset about her dad, and then. Uh, Sydney comes out after getting her eye checked out and like they sit together. She's like, oh, hey. And... She's like, oh, hey, um, I'm sorry. I don't know who you are. And she goes like, oh, you don't know who I am. You're, you you're the reason why I don't have any death perception for the next three to six months. <laughs> yeah. And then they like, they fight about it, but then they like, but then it's like, I'm sorry. My dad, I don't know if my dad's going to live or die. And then she's like, uh, like maybe, maybe it can be like a, a, Sydney takes a deep breath and is like, okay, let's deal with that. And then they, and then they bond. And then I would actually believe that they had something to bond over yeah. instead of. And like, hey, do you want to get a ride back to school? And yeah. then they go to school. I feel like people should bring their books to us. <laughs> and then it was like, well, we're going to essentially rewrite this. That's called being an editor. Okay. Yes. <laughs> I've heard of it. <laughs> You're just going to. Are you interested in our editing services? Email us. Well, <laughs> HFK podcast editing tips. <laughs> Last episode was sex tips. This episode's editing tips. How many? What tip do you want uh, next week? Ooh, just the tip. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, no! All right. Chapter eight. Chapter eight. Becca sneaks into her dad's room in the hospital and tries to reconcile the fact that he's an objectively bad father, but that she still loves and misses him. I don't remember this book being advertised as a meditation on emotionally absent parents. Um, I just want to say really quick about chapter eight uh-huh. that she she doesn't know what room he's in, so uh, she calls the gift shop to put money on his TV, and that's how she finds out what room he's in. And I'm like, well, wait, you have to pay for the TV when you're in the hospital? Did you know this? I didn't know this. I'm not in the hospital I, ever. I mean, I no, I did not know that, and I also figured they would have waived it if you were in a coma. Right? Yeah. It just, I don't know, that didn't make you, like, needle screech and go, what? Because I did. I've never heard of it. Yeah, I was just like, is that a thing? I'm going to assume it is, but it's it's weird. I don't like it. All right, go ahead, Chapter 9. Chapter 9. Everyone in the community gathers at Roy's house for an emergency meeting. While everything gets set up, Becca helps a boy named Elijah name his horrific drawing of the apocalypse as Paradise. At which point she again realizes how messed up their community is. Roy helps her recover from both her anxiety attack and her cascade of bad similes, and they go into where the adults are meeting. 
They're voting on an interim community leader while Becca's dad is hospitalized. Two frontrunners emerge. Tamara, a staunch isolationist, and Matt, a more moderate candidate. However, Becca's mom is eventually unanimously voted in after an emotional display and people agreeing it's what Becca's dad would want. Becca notices that her mother was faking tears and knows something's up when her mother's first act as leader is to lower the training age from 13 to 10, putting Katie in range, which her father had previously resisted. Chapter 10. Just 10 minutes later, a new training exercise is implemented. It's inspired by the car accident and features an identical model to Becca's dad's sedan. Wow, this is upsetting. They zip-tie Becca's arm to simulate breakage, strap weights to one leg, cover her eyes with drunk goggles, and strap her into the car to make her escape. Wow, this is horrifying. Becca finds a rescue tool in the glove compartment and is able to break the window and crawl through, then rejoins the spectating crowd, while Katie, who has never done any survival exercises, is strapped in next. Becca tries to appeal to their mom when she realizes Katie is probably going to shred herself on the broken glass, but her mom just tells her that pain is the best teacher and watches as Katie miraculously escapes, mostly unscathed. Wow, this is traumatizing. Yeah, um, so, that meeting was something else. I had a problem with language in this chapter about this child, uh, Elijah, who comes, uh-huh. she's saying that he toddles over, and he's like, can you write the letters on my thing? He's ten. He's ten. The way she was writing him, I thought he was three, you know? Yeah. So I was just like, when I found out how old he was, I was like, excuse me, what? Part, pardon? You know that gif of that blonde man, like, blinking? Like, what? That, I was that guy. <laughs> What is happening here? Yeah, that was definitely true. Um, I wrote the thing about a bunch of bad similes, and I want to see if I can real quickly pull up any examples instead of just being like, ah, oh, these are bad similes, eh? Ah, see? Um, yeah. You know, like mobsters. Us and the Suggins gang don't approve of bad writing, see? <laughs> <laughs> uh, what chapter did we say that was? Eight? Nine? The, uh, nine was the meeting, and ten was uh the training which I think it felt more like a punishment than a learning exercise, like a punishment to Becca for like not getting the car open and performing emergency procedures on her father, even though when the help showed up, they needed the jaws of life to get the car open. So I don't know what like yeah. a kid with a backpack could have done, but the no slack is given at any time to anyone in this book. So except the Katie who wastes it, but whatever. I'm trying to find a, okay. the simile. Oh, just like, I managed to wobble to my feet, my legs as sturdy as two soaking wet Slim Jims. I didn't like that. Yeah, I was like, what? There's a reason, you know, just say noodles. We all know noodles. Yeah, it's like, I get that you want to, like, write something that's less cliche, but sometimes it's just better to stick with How many of us have made Slim Jims soggy and been all like, ha, look at it flap? No one. <laughs> I mean, that is just one of several, but there are a, a, there are a lot of times in here where I'm like, okay, yeah, different attempt for the first draft. Now let's go ahead and fix that into something readable for the second. Oh, oh, like, like Um, when, um, uh, Roy sleeping on the couch and like Brecca, Brecca, yep, Becca, Brecca, Brecca, um, Becca brings him breakfast. Do you see why I struggled? And he goes, oh, breakfast in bed. She goes, it's actually breakfast in couch. And I'm like, that's not clever. That kind of humor was all through this. 
is like correcting yeah. a thing to something stupid. And you know what? You yeah. know what it reminded me of. I, I was thinking of this yesterday when I was reading this. It reminded me of this John Mulaney bit about how you have the sleepover and there's always this one kid where someone says like, you know, it was fun when we watched uh, Beetlejuice tonight. And he goes, "Do you mean last night? Because it's a new day now. It's after midnight." And then John Mulaney gets all mad. Is all like. Get out of my house. Take your stupid sleeping bag. Get out of my house. And he's like throwing it after him. That's how I felt. Like those jokes. Like, I guess technically you're correct, but you're an asshole for saying it. You know? Yeah, there was a lot of those jokes. And then there were a couple of scenes of like, uh, I don't know if I've mentioned it here before or if I was just thinking about it for something else. Because it's something I definitely think about when I'm doing my own writing, which is if you write something that is supposed to be funny one of the quickest ways to make it not funny is to try and emphasize how funny it is. Like, anytime something's like, so-and-so did something and then the other characters were crying from laughter, it's like, I don't find it funny, and now you've told me that it's the most funny thing, which makes it even less funny. Um, There were a couple of things, I think, when like she's at lunch with Sydney or something, where it's like, it's supposed to be funny and wacky and goofy, but it's like, it's very try-hard. So yeah, I didn't really think there was much funny. It's like funny. someone saying they don't have a threshold of pain, they have a vestibule of pain. Yeah. We not... know what book we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, look at me being clever, and everyone else going, mm, no, you're not, shut up, you know, this is what this is. Ugh, God. It's like, yes, you're drawing attention to yourself, but that doesn't make you clever. Yeah, I'm just kicking the sleeping bag out of my bedroom as we speak, can't handle it. <laughs> <laughs> there's always somebody at us the sleepover that's like you're not really with the rest of us are you <laughs> they're the tertiary just here. i mean i've definitely been that i've Me too. i've been that at sleepovers uh but i am socially aware enough to recognize that that's the situation i'm in and just kind of be content to be just around I have sometimes you know? been that person and I could feel it happening and I keep seeing the looks every time I talk and I'm like thinking, fine, and then I lean into it harder and keep being that just because like, they're not going to like me anyway, I'm not even going to try. And just being that way, so, I don't know, it's exhausting, it was a whole book of it and I just could oh, breakfast and couch, I, I nearly screamed, like, I was so mad. Alright, let's move on to chapter 11. Chapter 11. It's Becca's birthday! She and Katie get to clean up the house before the guests arrive, at which point everyone will get juice and a slice of vegetable cake. Be jealous. <clears throat> During the party, Roy takes Becca aside and gives her two gifts. Flares from his parents, and a necklace from himself. Necklaces, like most non-essentials, are frowned upon, which means either Roy is trying to trick her so he can gain clout for confirming that she's not a believer, or he's a non-believer himself. She tries to talk to him about it, and he briefly confirms that he's not a believer and uh, has been trying to tell her all week. Then the party is over, and Becca's mom, who acted like the consummate housewife slash party host, is back to all business, telling the girls what the next steps are, since their dad is probably going to die. Katie freaks out and begins throwing away all her superhero stuff, because they don't save anyone, they didn't save her dad, and they won't save her. She then asks to see the bunker, fully buying into the prepper mentality. Okay, this party. It just sounds miserable from beginning to end. Who has to clean up the house and set up for their own birthday party? Oh, come on. And then her mom's swanning in in a new dress when bills are going unpaid, and Becca had to make a vegetable cake. 
I don't understand this at all. I don't understand this community because if it's supposedly a community, like don't communities come together at times of hardship? They should have casseroles crammed all in that fridge. And someone should have volunteered to like, oh, I'll make Becca a cake. And then like, here's her birthday cake. It's like, you guys are going through so much right now, you know, rather than this. The problem I had with this section was the part about he gives her the present. She's like, wait, does that mean you don't believe? And then he's like whispering like, yeah, I don't. I've been trying to tell you all week. I'm not a believer. I'm just like you. But like they're doing it while they're taking pictures in the middle of what is presumably a normal to smaller size house, considering what sort of community they're in, surrounded by paranoid preppers who are convinced that at any moment there's going to be a traitor in their midst. There's no way that they can whisper this conversation during the photo session. No. Not even a little. And also, I don't understand her reaction of being angry and storming away. I was just like, but you have an ally now. What is wrong with you? <laughs> again, again, I really just feel like to the author, the characters are action figures that she's like, and then they're going to do this. And it's like, well, does that make sense? Does it make sense for Batman to now be uh, heading over to play cribbage with the Spider-Man? And it's like, no, but that's why I wanted them to do. And it's like, well, think about what Batman would really do. He wouldn't go be playing cribbage over with Spider-Man. And it's like, I don't they're, care. They're, they're my from two figures. different series. <laughs> they don't know each other. So. So I I kept getting that vibe of, like, I get that she wanted to have that scene, but it doesn't feel like a thing that what little character we have would be. Again, unearned. Yes. Chapter 12. The next morning, Becca's mom has her take Katie out to the greenhouse before school. Katie proves to be more indoctrinated than Becca thought when Roy suggests she eat a worm because she might have to do so in a survival situation. And Katie does it without hesitation. Uh. Becca and Roy go to school, and Katie tries to sit with Sydney and some of the other normies, but it's high school, so of course she's picked on. She goes back to sitting with Roy, and their relationship becomes a bit more real, since Roy can drop the prepper act around her. He wistfully imagines a time when he can leave this all behind and start a new life. During P.E., Becca gets out of swimming by telling her teacher, who happens to be Roy's dad, that she's on her period, even though he tries to harass her about that not being a legitimate excuse, and that it wouldn't stop her from dealing with a flood, and so on and so on. Uh, Sydney is also sitting out, and they end up having a good old bondage sesh. I mean, bonding sesh. Ew. Speaking of ew, uh, uh, Becca walking away from the gym teacher pulling her pants open to be like, you want to check? Ew, yeah, okay, see, that was the full, yeah, you know, I was just like, don't, don't do that. Gross. She would have been sent to the office for doing that. I didn't really understand how the bullying worked. Like a girl took a picture. I don't. What? 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 What do we do with this? It's like she takes a picture, and the friend's like, "What the f?" and slaps it into pudding, and then Becca storms away. And I'm just like, "What the hell?" I don't. I don't get what. And then like the football players laughing. Well, I don't think anyone would be. They'd be all like, "What just happened?" You know. Yeah. I didn't understand what happened. And then, and then later she's like, yeah, I'm sorry for my fan. And then she starts taking pictures of Becca herself and Becca's suddenly fine with it. So I was like, I don't understand. Yeah, I wrote, I don't understand this book. Yeah. I also don't understand how Becca as a character is simultaneously like the quiet, good student and also the one who's like shouting about her period in PE and like, making a big scene like she she switches between those roles kind of whenever like yeah you you can't be feral and tamed it doesn't make sense 
Chapter 13. You sound so defeated. Becca runs into Miss Garcia, who is generally supportive and uh, tries to be the only useful adult in this book, which is to be expected given the genre. At home, Becca checks the mail and finds an envelope from Carnegie Mellon as well as Katie's report card. She hides the envelope from Carnegie, and she and her mom look at the report card. Katie's doing great, except she kind of comes across as a Nazi sympathizer in her history class because she blames France's invasion on them not being prepared. Their mom sees a photo of Katie at the aquarium in the school newsletter, and Katie rats on Becca signing the permission slip. Their mom pitches a fit about how they don't have enough money to pay a ransom if Katie gets abducted. Then she smacks Becca across the face, and Becca lashes out, then goes to her room to look at her letter from Carnegie. She's been accepted with a full ride, but she can't leave Katie now, not when she's realizing just how unsafe their home life actually is. Chapter 14. The compound is awoken by their sirens, alerting an intruder on the grounds. Everyone suits up for battle and goes to their stations, only for Becca to figure out it's just the neighbor's goat. I would argue that that chapter didn't necessarily need to be there. It I guess it does what, kind of foreshadow yeah, yeah, the yeah. I the think that's ending, why it was so, there. Yeah. yeah. That makes otherwise sense. It did, it, otherwise yeah. it did feel a little bit like fluff. But then when yeah. you read later, you're like, okay, I see why that was there. Yeah. Before I get to the next day, do you want to, do you have anything to say about Yeah, the, let's say some, report card yeah, thing? yeah, yeah. Um, I think this is another unearned moment and felt really shoehorned in. Like, how long ago was this field trip? Why would there be a newsletter already talking about it? And B, okay, she's an indifferent mother. We are all agreed upon this. The text agrees upon this. Why is she staring intently at this picture until she picks out her kid? How many kids are in that class? That's weird. The mom's not going to look at it really hard and find her in the picture. That's so hackneyed. I, I don't I don't buy it. Yeah. And then the complete turning on Becca was like, she signed the thing and she said it'd be fine. And that I wrote in the notes, Kitty would never. <laughs> <laughs> like she wouldn't even tell when Laura Jean went on the road trip with Chris and said, don't yeah. tell daddy what happened what's going on and she didn't come home till 3 a.m who knows what yeah, could happen she let her dad be she like let, horrified for yes, hours rather than rather spill than the spill beans, the beans and it would have made sense to spill the beans and i don't think laura jean would have even gotten mad about it yeah but kitty knows what well you know she's heard what happens to snitches they get them stitches yeah katie needs some fucking stitches. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give Katie some stitches. I'll give Katie some stitches. I'm not going to warn her when there's glass in the next training exercise. There's her stitches. I'm going to sew her up like an orange. <laughs> I thought that was actually pretty clever. Yeah, yeah, I was just like, okay, I see. All right. One thing they're doing that uh, makes sense. Yeah. But also, like, her mom isn't even upset about the idea of Katie getting hurt. She's upset about, like, the fact that she doesn't have enough money to pay a ransom. Oh, yeah, yeah. But here's the thing. I don't think she would think about that. I think she would be like, I don't have money to pay a ransom. I guess I've lost a daughter. Yeah. Well, I think we all just have to live with the idea that she's probably dead. Anyway, you're like, she was just over in the corner. What are you? Wow. You didn't even look? Every every time Katie leaves the house, their mom is just like, I just have to accept that my daughter is dead because I do not have object permanence. And then every time Katie comes back home, she's like, I now have a second daughter. Oh, and when Becca makes like a dig at the mom for all like, her dresses and the lattes that she's been buying, I, I wrote like the mom makes some sob story about how she sacrificed all her life. So she deserves these splurges. And, I'm, and I go, it's like, you could have just left the cult, Karen. All your problems are self-made. 
they're not really being kept there. I couldn't believe how they were able to go in and out of that neighborhood just fine. And apparently they're connected to another normal neighborhood. So it's yeah. not like they're like out in the sticks and they have sentries at the gate to keep you in. This isn't Scientology. You get to leave. It's fine. Yeah, it's it's prepper light. Um, I, I think I should specify it's not the Sea Org. It's harder to get out of the Sea Org. If you're public Scientology, you're fine. But, yeah, but if you're on a boat. You signed that million year contract, so you're you're in. Is it million or I think it's million. I don't remember. I didn't read the fine print. Well, you should have because now you're stuck. I don't know. I'm going to write a knowledge report on you just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even sound like really Scientology. I'm like, I'm, I have so many KRs written on you, Josh. I, this is going to come up during my next auditing. It is. Yeah, because I am your auditor. Oh, <laughs> and your thetans are off the scale. <laughs> All right, that's enough. Chapter 15. At school the next day, Aiden brags about being the first person from town to be admitted to an Ivy League school. Becca's French class takes turns sharing their post-graduation plans, and Becca opts not to mention that she's just going to stay in a doomsday cult out of a misguided belief that she can save her sister that way. She breaks the news to Roy at lunch after he sees her acceptance letter and gets mad when he tells her that sounds like a waste of her potential. She leaves him and goes to the bathroom to be alone, but finds Sydney there instead. Sydney proves to be the real friend she made along the way. <laughs> Becca can't understand why she's so nice to her after she elbowed her in the face, but Sydney admits she wants to egg Becca's house on a dare, so they're basically even. Sydney then tells her to come to her house at midnight. She has plans to do something spontaneous. That's not what spontaneous means. <laughs> that's when you could have used that kind of humor and it wouldn't have been annoying you know like it's actually breakfast and couch you know just like that's not what spontaneous means no the other way to make it funny is every time you're gonna correct something you just say it's more like breakfast in couch but regardless of what you're actually correct, I feel like that should be the merch. Like, breakfast and couch. We're gonna do something spontaneous actually it's breakfast and couch <laughs> and he's like what? <laughs> and then Becca doesn't know what to do, so she just says it again louder. And then like does double middle fingers and Healy's out <laughs> and of the back, and then Healy's out the of the door. room. <laughs> <laughs> They're self-made Healy's because she couldn't actually buy Healy's. <laughs> They're just like pieces of like a like a wooden. Dowel. She told her mom to get her away from like an explosion faster. <laughs> she had Healy's. <laughs> That's actually what our science project was about. <laughs> How fast can you get away from an explosion if you're wearing Heelys? <laughs> oh, God, that's so stupid. Yeah, I didn't understand Becca's tantrum about him saying that's a waste. Because it is. Yeah. yeah, also, my first thought was, you can't help her by being around. The, the best way to help is to get yes. out of the situation and then find a way to help her from outside. That Like, immediately, that's what I thought. And it's like, I'm going to take an extra ten chapters to figure that out. And I'm like, I don't believe you. <laughs> yeah no she ate a worm without even gagging you can't help her i read a book called bad science by ben goldacre and there's a really good quote in it that i love and it says you can't reason people out of a position they did not reason themselves they didn't reason into. themselves into yeah and that she's exhibit a she's there out of fear there's nothing you can do about that. The best she can do is get out of this shithole, build a new life for herself somewhere so that she has a safe place to bring Katie to and get her some yeah. like cult deprogramming therapy once she's out because Becca can't handle this on yeah. her own. Yeah, it's too big. She can't. There's nothing she can do. 
Chapter 16. Becca and Roy sneak out of the compound and, in, and into Sydney's normal, almost picturesque neighborhood. They find Sydney and her friend Mel in a murder... <laughs> it's, a, I, it's a murder van, but I wrote a murder can. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that would be like a Stephen King story. Or like, oh, you don't want to look in that can. Why? Everyone who looks in that can, they end up moited. By a can? Not by the can, but they do end up moited. I don't know what accent that was. I was trying to do a, a Northeastern. At least I try. They find Sydney and her friend Mel in a murder van, and the four of them are off to Mel's boyfriend's party. The boyfriend, Brock, apparently lives in a mansion, and when they arrive, they find him struggling to light a bonfire in the backyard. Becca and Roy help start it, and the party is underway. Sydney helps Becca get tipsy, while she herself gets very loud and encouraging about everything. One of the AP physics kids, Brian, tries to figure out how to safely jump the fire. Becca finds Roy, drunk, away from the rest of the group. They sit together, and for the first time, Becca can recall she actually wants to be with him, to be touching him. Roy admits Becca is the only part of his life worth keeping, which is really sweet. And there goes Brian over the bonfire. Watch out. Um... I, again, I wrote the, these character names expecting, like, Mel or Brock to matter. They don't. Nope. This is the one chapter that they're in. So, I, you know, they both get tipsy, and then Becca wants to make out. So, like, that's true love right there. That's Drunken um, makeouts, yeah. Yeah, that's our first sign of true It's one of the, it's one of the love. five love languages. <laughs> <laughs> What's your love language? Oh, beer. Beer. <laughs> Drunk, drunken makeout. Mine are hamburgers. What? Mine is breakfast and couch. <laughs> Chapter 17. The next morning, Becca asks her neighbor, Tamara, to drive her and Katie to the mall so Becca can use her birthday money to buy Katie new shoes that actually fit. Because their mom doesn't consider that as important to survival as seismic-resistant picture hooks? Yeah. All the, like, all the uh, earthquakes in Ohio, didn't you hear about it this year? Properly fitting shoes, I feel like, is the most important part of your, like, survival wardrobe. Yeah. Because if your feet get messed Gangrene. up, it, it's just over. Yeah. So, like, I did not, I, I didn't buy that at all. I was like, no, a prepper would know that. Well, especially because Katie was taking off her shoes and you see the front uh, fronts of her toes are rubbed raw from where they're r- brushing against the inside of the shoe. So that's not just yeah. like, oh, it's uncomfortable. It just pinches a little. No, this is, like, serious. She needs real shoesies. Yeah. Um, on their way out, Becca finds a bin filled with her dad's stuff, which is very ominous. On the way, Tamara and Becca discuss Becca's future job, uh, which is determined to be compound electrician, because she's smarter than Roy, who's stuck being a mechanic, even though that seems pretty complicated, too. It is, yeah, too. I didn't think that was a very fair assessment. Like, I don't think I'm smart enough to be a mechanic. Like, not in that sort of intelligence. I don't have those, like, my brain doesn't work that way. Um, so yeah, that wasn't fair. At the mall, Katie finds a pair of shoes on sale and then asks to visit their dad, at which point they start talking about the last time they visited their grandparents before they died, and now they're crying in a footlocker. Roy is waiting for Becca back at the house and asks her to run away with him after graduation. He loves her and stuff for real and can't stand the idea of leaving without her. Their relationship makes me deeply uncomfortable. Then Becca reiterates that she's going to stay in order to take care of Katie and says she'll never love Roy as much as she loves Katie, 
Which is obvious because she doesn't love Roy. At no point in here has she expressed any sort of love towards Roy. But now we're being told that she does love Roy. Uh, side note, I feel most sympathetic for anyone in the story, uh, for the employee at yes, the shoe store who a, has to watch I these girls. Like, right next to the okay, checkout yeah, stand. I'm, I'm gonna write what I wrote. Okay, so like, they're crying and talking about like, dad's in a hospital bed, and like, Becca hugs her and glares at the employee watching them. And I go, like, maybe don't have messy personal discussions in public. Maybe take your shit you've paid for and get the fuck out. Like, they've already paid. They're still standing there. And she thinks the clerk is the villain for, sta- for like, watching and intruding on this moment. And it's like, no, she has to be at the register, you fool. You have legs and can walk away. Functioning legs. She is ambulatory. She can walk and leave. Ugh. Yeah, I went off on that. Like, my... Poor footlocker My person. writing got really messy because I was so mad, like, writing that out. I was just like, I am a retail employee, and I've had to listen to so many uncomfortable conversations because i was i couldn't leave we had a woman once come in and ask for a pen and she had a piece of cardboard she'd taken from our recycling and then she wrote on the cardboard for a very long time and then discarded the cardboard and walked away and then we looked at the the cardboard and it was a suicide note so yeah we get uncomfortable stuff chapter 18 Several weeks pass, Becca's dad still isn't home, and she eventually asks her mom why his stuff is boxed up. She says he won't need it anymore, which is even more ominous, and why isn't Becca asking what exactly she means? Because that sure seems definitive. Becca's mom reveals that she's chosen Elijah to be Katie's arranged husband, which greatly upsets Katie. Their mom grabs Katie by the hair and tells them that they're gonna do what she tells them, because she never had a choice in life, so why should they? After some more domestic abuse, Becca takes their dog for a walk and stops at a convenience store, then considers death while eating ice cream. I don't know what to do with this book anymore. (laughs) I just wrote that she has an epiphany that she needs to leave her shit heap town, and then I wrote, hallelujah. Yeah, it's just full of unearned weird. I just, I don't, I don't. And the mom uh, pulling her hair and shaking her around. And I wrote, I'd hate this, but I hate all these people and don't care. <laughs> Which doesn't mean if I don't like you, you deserve to be abused. It's just these these fictional characters in this particular situation. I just don't care about any of them. Chapter 19. On the way home, Becca stops by Roy's house and admits that running away might be the right thing to do. After all, it would show the kids of the compound that there are alternatives to just spending your whole life waiting for the apocalypse. I don't know what accent that was. I was trying to do a, a Northeastern. Were you trying to go for, yeah, for a, a like a New Yeah, England. it didn't work. <laughs> I don't know what accent that was. I was trying to do a, a Northeastern. Were you try- I don't know what accent. Also saddens Becca because where do Roy's dreams fit into all this? Whatever, she's falling in love with him for real now. Chapter 20. At school, Becca tells Miss Garcia that she has been accepted into Carnegie Mellon. Miss Garcia gifts her with a stuffed Scotty dog, the Carnegie mascot, that she has been saving for months because she just knew Becca would make it in. Becca then goes to the school library and writes a letter to Carnegie asking for a waiver to live off campus with Roy due to unusual circumstances. Then she goes to her locker and finds a business card for a social worker that her guidance counselor gave her. Chapter 21 Becca, Roy, and Sydney sit together at lunch, and the prepper couple teases Sydney by making her think they're cannibals. 
Side note, I'm noticing that I find the Doomsday prepping stuff more believable than the characters themselves, like they're just action figures the author is posing in whatever way she needs to make scenes happen without wondering if the scenes actually work, because this scene feels like a big waste of space, failing at being believable or funny. Anyways, while talking to Sydney about the bunkers, she has a breakthrough for her science fair project. She raids the school's lost and found for supplies, then finds Miss Garcia again. She shows her the social worker's business card and says that she has a way to prove the compound is not a safe place for Katie to be raised, and asks if Miss Garcia will help. Miss Garcia says, of course, and embraces Becca as she collapses in tears. I'm sorry if that was very harsh about the cannibal joke. It just was like three pages, and it wasn't good. No, I've seen so many more funny jokes um, directed at Army Hammer lately than this whole scene. Uh, okay. Yeah. You have anything no. to say yet? Cool. Chapter 22. Back home, Roy almost spills the beans about their escape plan in front of Katie, but she doesn't seem to notice. Becca gets approval for her housing waiver and submits her paperwork to Carnegie Mellon. She and Roy then head to one of the bunkers to continue working on the mysterious school science fair project. They finish the poster board, and Roy offers to make a model as well. Becca laments that everyone else is at prom and they're making dioramas in a doomsday bunker. So Roy whips up a mini prom out of paper crafts and weeds and they dance like goobers for a bit. Then Becca tries to get it on and Roy stops her, saying he wants to wait until they've left this all behind before they make good memories together so as not to taint anything. (laughs) Taint. I only have one thing to say. I wrote, um, but she feels like mold. It's prom night and she is lonely. It's Teenage Dirtbag reference, everybody. Yeah. Go listen to the song. It's the best song ever. Uh... The only thing that I really have to say there is, um, he's like, go sit in the shower for 10 minutes and don't peek and I'll fix this up. And when she starts describing all the stuff that he made, it would have taken. I know, the origami animals. I'm like, as soon as she mentioned origami, I'm like, okay, 10 minutes for one crane, let alone the, like, the food and the paper chains and going outside to go get a weed for a corsage. Like, she has no concept of 10 minutes. I was like, BS. I will say that the about the only relatable part of this whole book is the scene where they're dancing, uh, and Roy's dance move is to just, like, jump backwards at Becca, wiggling his butt as she runs away from him. Uh, it doesn't work because I don't believe that they have uh, ever been near a chemistry lesson, let alone have chemistry with each other. But it is a very dumb thing that I will sometimes do to my girlfriend because I, I have known her for five years, and... It makes more sense to do that with somebody that you actually, like, trust and enjoy. Twerkings for lovers. Twerkings for lovers, not for bunkers. Ah! <laughs> uh, their enchantment under the ground prom theme. Boo. I'm, I'm done. Under the ground. Under the ground. More like breakfast on couch, right? <laughs> Everyone hunker down in the bunker. Breakfast and couch! <laughs> chapter 23 becca dolls herself up in one of her mom's dresses drops katie off at her neighbors the hepworths uh and meets with roy who is similarly disguised together they head to the local flea market to sell their possessions in order to afford their trip out of ohio becca sells her phone and laptop to an electronics dealer then her survival equipment to a camping vendor who tries to lowball her until becca shows her mailing address on her license uh, this shuts her up. Uh, Becca and Roy reconvene. Five hundred dollars richer. I was expecting to come back that to come back and bite them, like her revealing who she was. So this lady. Would... I was expecting a lot of things to come and back. That and that didn't. Bite them. Yeah, well, uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I hate this yep. book. That's it. Nope. Yep. 
chapter 24, on the way back, Becca and Roy stop at a diner and enjoy a meal and some doomsday would-you-rather. <laughs> at this point, we get confirmation that Becca's a third-generation prepper. Both sets of her grandparents founded the community. Back at the compound, Roy takes Becca into the woods near one of the bunkers to a dead spot in his dad's camera security system. Becca almost blows it by using her phone, which I thought she just sold, as a flashlight, but nobody finds them. Roy then shows her his secret stash, over a thousand dollars buried in the woods. It's all his lunch money that he's been saving for the last four years, proving that he was never a believer. They add their new funds to the stash. They really should have two stashes just in case someone finds this one and head home. Am I wrong? Did she... Did she have a second, like, an old model phone that she sold? I think she had a second old uh, model phone. Okay. That was um, three years I, old, she said. I thought about that, but I, then I also thought about how I felt like her parents wouldn't have been that quick to upgrade her phone, and that having a three-year-old phone would have been feasible for her to be Hey, using. she had $10 in her pocket and somehow still couldn't pay for lunch. There's some inconsistencies here. Uh, but yeah, as soon as they like, he he's like, here's all the money I've been saving. I'm like, why is it all in one place? Right. Why didn't you open up a secret bank account that your parents couldn't have access to? Wouldn't that have been a good place to keep it? Like for being trained in prepping, they don't know. Chapter 25. When Becca gets to her house, she finds Katie and her mom arguing. Katie, it turns out, followed Becca and Roy and saw them stash the money and is being a little snitch. Becca tries to deny it, but her mom and Katie go out to investigate. Becca texts Roy to get the money and freaks out when he doesn't respond. Becca's mom and Katie come back with the box of money, and Becca says she and Roy were just saving up for wedding rings. Her mom is actually almost pleased to hear Becca planning for her future in the compound and locks the money in her safe. Katie storms off, sure that Becca is a liar. Becca runs out to Roy's house and tells him she ruined everything, at which point... He reveals that he did go get the money and left just enough in the box to make her mom think she found everything. But Operation Escape to Pittsburgh is still a go. One of the only things that a character does where I'm like, good job. And wouldn't you know it, it's Roy again. Yeah, that's why this should have been his book. Should have been his book. Yeah, but he, he he reveals it again in an unnecessary way. He's like, oh, no, that's awful. I'm so sorry. Here, why don't you wipe your tears? Whoops, is that a $20 bill? And I'm like, this is no time for joking. It's a perfect time for joking. Okay. Chapter 26. At school, the senior class is having a rehearsal graduation, but Becca feigns overheating to get it over with quicker. Was there really a point to doing this? Like, I couldn't figure, like, at first I thought this was some part of, like, getting her plan in motion, but then I realized that it didn't change anything. I think it was supposed to show how Becca's so fun and cool and with it. And everyone knew she faked it to get them out of it. And the whole bus clapped. You know, (laughs) 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 how this felt. I I wrote, oh, the kids think she's a hero. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. These are like not the meanest notes I've ever written, but they're not nice. At lunch, she and Roy tell Sydney they're going to leave town before graduation, which Sydney approves of. Becca cleans out her locker and checks in with Miss Garcia, who updates Becca on her part of the plan. She's in the process of getting her home approved for taking temporary custody of Katie, until Becca and Roy can get situated and apply for full custody. Miss Garcia asks Becca if she's going to check in on her dad before leaving, and Becca is torn. She doesn't really think it will matter, and anyways, her mom has been very vague on her dad's condition, but Becca also feels like it might help to have closure. Chapter 27. Becca and Roy go to the hospital and sneak into the ICU to visit Becca's dad, but his room is empty. They run into a nurse who informs them that Becca's dad died two weeks ago. 
<laughs> Becca can't believe it and starts to have a breakdown. Roy notices the nurse calling to get a counselor involved, at which point Roy tells Becca that this isn't going to help her case for getting custody of Katie, so they should just leave. They head home and Becca confronts her mother. Her mother, emotionless, tells her that she told her to let go because her dad was unlikely to recover. Furthermore, Becca's mom explains that when her marriage was arranged, her own mother told her not to love anyone because it makes you weak and that nobody would ever love her. She tried to instill these same values in Becca. Becca goes to tell Katie about their dad, but Katie already knew. Their mom told her and she opted not to tell Becca because Becca doesn't tell her the truth. So why should she do her the favor? It's not even remotely comparable at all. This is a chapter to Yeah. Okay. So I'm pretty sure that nurse shouldn't have said anything. Um, <laughs> oh, I'm going to make a dumb joke like that room hasn't been occupied in 25 years. You know, when she's like, Where's yeah, my dad? that's exactly what I thought. <laughs> you never had a dad. He was dead the whole time. Ooh. And then this mom's speech when she like comes home and she's like, why didn't you see fit to tell me that my father was dead? And the mom basically says, like, in this life, you either kill yourself or be killed. What you going to do? What you gonna do? What you gonna do? <laughs> what you gonna do? <laughs> I remember at one point, I don't remember how far in the book you were, uh, but you texted me something along the lines of, if this is how the author, like, thinks about humans, I feel really bad for her or something yeah, like that. Yeah, basically. Because she has, like, there's a very, even with the quote-unquote heroes, there's a very negative opinion of most of these people that I'm getting from the author. Yeah. Like, she doesn't, she doesn't like any of her characters. No. That's not, that's what I'm getting, is that she's like, you're miserable, you're miserable, you're a nice person, but I'm gonna do bad things to you, and it's just really unpleasant to read. It's like, it's almost like a, a teen romance version of, like, torture porn. It's like, what awful things can I do to these people? I think it really is just a personality thing. You know, we're getting too personal about the author, I don't like that. Right, I, I, I don't want, I don't want to make judgments about the author, I just, I want to talk about the perception that I have as a reader about how she's writing about the, people. Right. It's, it's not a, it's not directly to the author. It's the, that in it's this, it's this so. very sour, cynical way of looking at people that I just, just doesn't sit right with me. And I think like a direct opposite of this is rainbow Rowell, where you feel like she genuinely cares about everybody on that page and they might go through some shit and they do, but you don't feel like she's, doing it to be mean or it's like, oh, they're going through so much pain right now. Let me drink your tears. You know, like nothing like that. So I I feel like if you hate Rainbow Rowell's writing and can't stand it, you're going to like this. But if you hate this, go read Rainbow Rowell because it's it's different. This book is just a very much a matter of taste, I feel. And Josh right. and I are just spitting it out on the ground going, ugh. You know, well, everyone else is like, I don't know why you don't like licorice ice cream. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of a lot of the tonal stuff definitely has to do with taste. I think that there are like what we were talking about, how from the beginning it fell off a bit structurally. I think there's some stuff that's just was not a good decision, but I don't know. I'm having a hard time imagining the sort of person that would really get into this book. Like, I can understand somebody reading it and being like, yeah, it was fine, but I, the person who would love this book is hard for me to picture. And maybe that's just because I'm so not like that sort of person. I think, I feel like it's probably going to be somebody who uh, reads this, and, and if they really, really like it, and they don't typically like teen stuff, they're going to like the bulk of most literary fiction. 
because I've this is where it's just awful things happening to people. Well, a lot of literary fiction I hate because it kind of already has this tone. This tone's in a lot of like mainstream adult fiction, which is why I don't tend to like those books because I'm just like. God, you have to feel superior to everyone you meet. Do you know how tiresome right. you are? You just seem like right. such a it's crappy like, person. I'm superior to everybody that I'm writing about. And also, I've been through such horrific things. So I'm going to put my characters through things so you can understand the pain that I felt. And it's like, that doesn't that doesn't create like empathy. <laughs> that just makes it seem like you're then trying to transpose your pain onto fictional characters and then hoping that we also get some of that. And, and the yeah. thing is, with that particular kind of tone, though, if it's not addressed within text, then you just have to assume the author maybe doesn't realize it's there, and it's their own bias shining through. So right. then that's why we end up interpolating, like, oh, that must be just how the author sees the world, because it's never, you know, like, Roy never turns to her and go, gee, you really think you're better than everyone, don't you? You know, and then she'd be like, what? Yeah. Excuse me? Yeah, let me um let me throw this out at you as an example of somebody who writes about awful people doing awful things, but is very good at it. Uh because Gone Girl Yes Gone Girl is a vicious book, but it's so well done, and you don't get the feeling that she is a mean person. No. Like the author herself, you don't feel like she's a mean person. She just understands how to tell that kind of twisted story. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And I yeah, ju just to clarify, because we, we were intentionally trying to talk about it in a way that makes it clear, but just in case we haven't explicitly stated it, if the author happens to be listening, which is slightly more likely for these things, we're not passing judgment on you. We don't know you. We have not communicated with you. And so we don't want this to be uh, to sound like we are taking pot shots at you. We are just trying to describe the experience that we felt from reading the, the material. And it can be really difficult when it's, you know, a personal artistic thing. It can feel like it's a direct attack, but our intent is not to make it a personal attack no. against you. It is just a way for us to articulate the feelings that we had while reading your material. Precisely, yeah. She's probably a nice person. She had a lot of people to thank in her acknowledgments, so she's got a lot of people in her life who care about her. And, I'm sh yeah. and in turn, she cares about them, so... We're not saying she's like this horrible, hateful person who lives in a cave and just yeah. hates everybody, but... Yeah, absolutely uh -uh. not. No. She's not Alan Moore. <laughs> <laughs> Look, we're not talking about Swamp Thing here. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's why I was trying to, like, walk it back a little bit, but I don't know. I just, I had a problem with tone was my, was my issue, yeah. and I think that's a little bit harder of a critique to really take and work with. When you're a writer, because you're, I mean, your tone's your tone, you know? I don't, I don't know. Maybe it's just when she was writing. Um, I, when I looked at the author's page on Goodreads, she has, um, a book coming up that also sounds like a really fun concept. Um, it's like the teenage girl, uh, her mom is going on a dating show. It's like a dating reality show. And the daughter kind of has to come along because I think it's probably like single parents or something. And so the girl's yeah. there and she, and the girl, um, it's labeled as a rom-com. So uh, once they're in the competition, um, the girl like starts, she bonds with um, the son of another contestant. And I thought I was just like, well, that's kind of, she's good at thinking of like an interesting pre premise. You know, this was an interesting right, premise. Like, con conceptually, this is actually a really interesting book. 
Like, if you were just talking about the idea uh-huh. of it. And, I mean, for the story that we got, it's constructed pretty well. There weren't any, um, I didn't feel like there were any slow, draggy bits. I mean, we do, we, we did have some quibbles over what the story should have been, but for what we got, I thought it was written well. And it wasn't like just a whole chapter of Bella goes to this class and Bella goes to that, like Twilight, where you're just like, oh my God, I can't handle this. But, um, where was I going with this? Oh, so, but this was her first book. So I would be interested in seeing, I don't know if I'd read it. I'd have to like read reviews by people I trust, but I'd be interested in this uh, next book she has coming up. Like I may not have liked this, but I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm intrigued. Yeah. It's okay if you're not, you don't have to agree with me. <laughs> I'm just trying to, I'm trying to think of something to add besides just being like, I don't really care. Well, <laughs> uh, Cause that doesn't, that doesn't further the I'm conversation. I'm wondering if the dour tone is just because this miserable place. So if it's like in a glitzier place, maybe the tone will actually be kind of light and frothy because that's where we're at. So I just might not like Grimdark. I don't think I do. I don't. (laughs) Uh, There's a, there's a reason that in my book club, we have a list of like potential themes and I have written in there. If anybody picks Warhammer 40 K, I'm quitting book club because I just, I don't do Grimdark. (laughs) Okay. We're getting, we're getting to the end here. Let's, Let's do this. Though there's still, there's still some oh, stuff. Oh, yeah. Chapter 28. It's the day of the science fair. Aiden is smug. Sure, he will win. But Becca has an ace up her sleeve. Her project is on the physics of bunker survival, including a mock-up of a bike-powered generator and handouts of previously top-secret prepper information. But in addition to wowing the judges with her science, I really should have put blinding them with her science. Boop, boop, boop. Uh, but in addition to wowing the judges with her science, she invited a bunch of local reporters to help expose her community. Everyone is fascinated and a bit scared of her project, and she handily takes first place, much to Aiden's dismay. She gives her trophy to Miss Garcia and awaits the coming fallout. Chapter 29. Becca is at home when the reporters arrive. A group of them quickly congregate on the road outside her house, and one of them approaches the house to ask Becca's mom some questions. Just like Becca Hope, her mom flips out and goes into trespasser mode, which Becca hopes will be enough evidence to prove this place isn't safe for Katie. However, things quickly get out of hand when Becca's mom sends out an alert, and suddenly the whole community is on lockdown and ready to fight. Meanwhile, a SWAT team has arrived. Becca's mom is furious at Becca for selling them out. She smacks Becca across the face and kicks Katie in the ribs when she tries to go outside. Belle the dog runs out the door, and Katie follows. A gunshot rings out, and Katie hits the ground. Chaos erupts as Becca goes to check on Katie, but the bullet missed her. Becca finds Belle injured from being trampled during the fighting. She tells Katie that a real prepper wouldn't care that Belle is hurt, and that saving Belle means love is important to her, and she doesn't want to be a prepper. Katie wants to save Belle, but makes no promises about the prepper stuff. Things eventually calm down as the police apprehend almost the entire community. Becca hands Katie off to the officer she first met at her dad's car crash and tells him not to ever let her back here. The officer then looks away purposefully to allow Becca a chance to leave with Belle to find a vet. Whew. Uh, um, I, and then, the, the way that the preppers are, like, waving their guns on their porch and freaking out, I wrote in the margins, haven't these people heard of Waco? Like, chill out. And, and also, isn't this like a residential neighborhood? I mean, trespassing. They're on the road. Shut yeah. up. <laughs> God. Right? Are you picturing that meme of the of the uh the couple 
the the where the 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 woman's holding out the, the holding yes. the pistol and the yes. guys holding. <laughs> And they're wearing like the dumb polos. I've only ever, I've only ever, I've seen the photograph once, but I see, saw the meme where they photoshopped Trump's face on the woman's face, and it, it says "Stop the count." And it was really funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, like, what a great chapter. We the, we get a mom smacking one daughter and then kicking another one in the ribs, uh, and then somebody stepping on a dog and like crushing its tooth. Yeah, poor pup. Like, that was another one of those things where it's like, really, did we have to go there? I don't get why Becca didn't grab her backpack and then make this like, okay, my last act is I'm going to leave and make sure this dog gets some medical help. And then don't go back. Don't go back. This is, this is just walk away. This is like, yeah, if anything, the next chapter is even weirder. Okay, do it. Chapter 30, Becca takes Belle to Sydney's house and asks Sydney not only to take the dog to the vet, but also to adopt Belle outright. Uh-uh. She said, take her to the, take her to the pound. And then Sydney's like, I can just keep the dog if that's okay. It's less weird that way, but not really. It's it's less desperate on her part because it's not like I need to give you all of this responsibility. Well, if I'm paying, if if I'm paying a fucking vet for something, I'm going to keep the damn animal, you know, (laughs) the Danimal. (laughs) Okay, continue. Did you prefer Danimal or Gogurt? I didn't like that yogurty snacks. They were too, it was too sweet and nasty. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. Uh, yeah, Sydney is totally down with having a dog, uh, and her parents are so impressed with her mediocre grades that they'll surely agree to it. <laughs> Becca returns to the compound and finds her mom, who has had no change of heart at all. Uh, she berates Becca for betraying her, even as she's hauled off to jail with many of the other preppers. Uh, well, now that that's taken care of, time to find Roy and get out of Dodge. Becca loads up her meager belongings and heads to Roy's house, but before she can arrive, she's attacked by some of the remaining preppers, including Roy's dad, furious at her betrayal. Why did she go yeah. back, and then why did she just, like, go sit down with her mom? Why didn't- For her mom to just say nothing new. Like, that scene was like, I could- I, I would have loved for that- I don't need a full redemption, because, like, we- that would not feel earned. But I would love some sort of thing of, like, any sort of, like- either recognition from her mom or Becca getting a chance to actually say something to her about it. But it just felt like another one of their same conversations that they've been having. And I'm like, oh, why did she need to do that? Why did she come back? I don't I don't know. Because so this last part could happen, I guess. Right. And this last part is like, what a weird tack on it. It's just it. Like we said throughout unearned, unearned. None of this was earned. Like, like, uh, like when you say, why'd she come back? Like she sat with her mom, had the conversation. I guess she could do that. Why didn't she then leave with, with the cops? Why did she wait till the cops were gone? Cause they might not have acted and swarmed her if the cops were still there. You know, none of it makes sense. Send us home. Send us home. Okay. Chapter 31. Becca is taken to one of the bunkers and cuffed to a bed with no light or food or even a bucket. After waiting to see if her captors will return, she decides to break out on her own. She finds a can of soda that was one of Roy's personal belongings in his bunker trunk uh, and forms part of the can into a pick to uncuff herself. She sneaks out of the bunker and into Roy's basement, then waits for everyone to go to sleep. She goes upstairs and finds Roy. They make a break for freedom on Roy's dirt bike, his parents in hot pursuit in their car. They lose them by riding onto the train tracks and keep going until they're almost out of gas. Becca proclaims that she'll love Roy forever and give him everything he deserves because he's just the best. They find a gas station to refuel and take a break. Roy is worried because they didn't get to bring anything besides the money, but Becca assures him it's not the end of the world. That's actually how the story ends, is her saying that. The end. At least it wasn't boring. Boring is harder for me to forgive. 
Yeah, I can understand that. But I also just think of all of the things that I thought I was supposed to be caring about. And then I look back at the end of it and it's like, oh, I shouldn't have cared about that or that or that or that. And it does kind of feel like a waste of my energy for a lot of it. Um, I don't feel like I can personally like we will do whatever for the channel, but I'm not sure I can give it more than one star. I really I didn't like most of it and I didn't care for the rest of it. Like, like, I didn't care about the rest of it. I'm fine with the channel giving it one star. So. Doesn't, cause it's supposed to reflect me and yours, um, me and you's. Me and you's. <laughs> you's guys. <laughs> Mine and yours, like, well, each of us gets a vote in the opinion. It's only two stars for me because I didn't, again, I didn't hate it and there wasn't any personal rancor. Rancor, rancor, what? rancor. Yeah. <laughs> okay. How the hell do you know that when you don't even watch Star War? I I have uh You're like I know nerds. I've, and you're like, okay. Fair. I do. There's like this story when I was in college of like this group of people I hung out with and one of the guys had a very odd friend who came to hang out one weekend at, in our dorms and apparently during some game of trivial pursuit I think it was Star Wars Trivial Pursuit or something like that, the guy the guy got really, really drunk and just earnestly started talking about how Rancors make wonderful mothers. And that was just all anyone could talk about after the guy left. So, yeah, Rancor, Rancors are good, really good mothers. And he got, like, kind of tearful and sloppy about it. Um, again, he was drunk. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, I, this didn't spark enough personal hatred for me to give it one star. So it's an indifferent two stars. Um, feel free to make it one, because if you feel strongly, then put it that. Yeah, I just, I, I, I think the way that we're discussing it, you know, because the review is a, a mix of, like, our personal experiences reading it, and then also our experience together yes. discussing it. And the discussion definitely does not trend towards much positive at all. So, ultimately, yeah, it was definitely not a book for us. It had a lot of problems. It, I, I will stand by that it, if you were just to look at the blurb and, like, someone were to, like, elevator pitch the concept, really fun concept. Yeah. Like, I really like that idea. I just, I feel like a lot of the execution was mishandled, and it was, I think it was trying to stay within the wheelhouse of the expected teen fiction in all of the wrong ways, and then trying to deviate from that in also mostly wrong ways. And it didn't strike the right kind of balance for it to feel like anything, and there just wasn't a whole lot to connect to, so... And I know you and I are both, we express it in different ways, but ultimately we're both pretty emotional readers. Like, that's why we like Rainbow Rowell so much, is because we really get attached to those people, and they feel like people who we want we want to see them succeed, and when things don't go their way, we're upset, and we're really excited for them to triumph over that. And there's that back and forth emotionally that keeps us invested. And so when there's not any of that there, it's really hard for us. Uh, Jenny Han does that well as well in the Lara Jean books. I, I didn't yeah. read the summer I turned pretty trilogy. I don't think that'd be as much of my jam. I just yeah. kind of like the wholesomeness of uh, the world of Lara Jean. Uh, Rainbow Rowell, it's not quite as wholesome, but it's still like a fun person you'd want to hang out with. Just, I don't know her, her writing in her universe as a person, I guess. <laughs> yeah. But just tonally, if you want something the opposite of this, that's who you should go for. And also, I, I loved how you compared this, not compared it exactly, but the kind of uh, darker tone where you can write about unpleasant characters and unpleasant things. 
by compared to Gone Girl, because there's a right way and a wrong way to go about things. And also, it doesn't make us sound so much like, it has to be rainbows and lollipops in order for us to like things. Because, no, you can write dark thing about dark subject matter. Like, um, the thing about jellyfish. It's a girl coming to terms with uh, her friend dying. Yeah, there's a lot of really upsetting there stuff is, in there. There is, and there's actually genuine humor in it that we were amused by in, like, really good characters. And even the tertiary characters were super cool. And I think the science teacher in that one was better than the science teacher in this one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, I felt I felt more like pain from reading about the girl in the thing about jellyfish getting bullied in summer camp than about Becca's dad being in a coma. This actually also makes me feel the same way Riverland did. This is like uh-huh. Riverland, like all over again, just of, of just like, ah, interesting concept that just kind of didn't live up to full potential. But Riverland benefited from... The fantasy element? The fan the fantasy was was unique and um I I did feel like there was more going on with some of the characters. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, that so. was marginally better than than this. Um I liked the sisters in that one better than the sisters in this one. Mm-hmm. Well I, I guess this episode would make people happy who like the episodes where we hate the book. Hate's a strong word. It's just a whole lot of uh yeah, it's it's like it's not so much that I hate the book, but I hate the fact that I was so indifferent to the book. Right. I wanted to care more and I was <laughs> waiting to care more. And it just it never happened. I, I read this. Uh, I'd read a chapter and then play a day of Stardew Valley, read a chapter, play a day of Stardew Valley. So it was a very good palate cleanser. <laughs> <laughs> so I recommend that's how you guys should read it, too. Uh, authors, don't let this dissuade you from sending us material. There's. But material that they sent us that we've enjoyed. Uh, check out Every Stolen Breath. Yes. Another book that actually, at its core, had some really upsetting elements, but was handled oh, totally yeah. differently. And was also for a teen audience. Yes. And had a romance. So, like, uh-huh. I think that I, I'd be interested to go back to the episode of Every Stolen Breath and kind of parallel that, because it, surface level, there are some similarities between these two, but I, we've, whatever. We've, we've said, we've said it. Uh, that being said, Thank you to uh, the publicist and the author, Bethany Mangel, for uh, hooking us up with this. Uh, hopefully this honest critique is helpful for you and does not dissuade you from writing because what does it matter? We're just two nobodies. No, we're not. We're not. <laughs> it's like, oh, no. You, ha- you have a publishing deal with Simon & Schuster. You're fine. We have a podcast You've got that a... <laughs> we pay an annual fee for and then get 50 listeners. You've got like a, a book coming up that sound that i said sounded interesting and that i would be interested in reading so you're doing something right keep keep doing what you're doing we're not making or breaking this book hello fellow kids is hosted by mara and josh produced by josh music provided by ben ash visit him at benash.com if you'd like to contact us please do so at hfkpodcast at gmail.com or find us on twitter and instagram at hfkpodcast uh, we are reading The Witch Boy, a graphic novel, uh, and that's going to be coming up in just a little bit here at the top of March, and we'll be, I don't think we have anything fancy on the horizon, so we'll be back to normal at that point. Thanks for listening. Take Bye-bye. care. Bye-bye.